0: I'm Kyle McNulty and you're listening to Secure Ventures, the show that follows cutting edge founders in the cybersecurity space to understand their plights, glories, and revolutionary products. With me in this episode is Nitsan Ziv. Nitsan is the CEO and founder of Ox Security, a software supply chain security company performing vulnerability contextualization analysis so security teams and developers can focus on the issues that are truly most impactful. After working at the IDF for five years, Nitsun founded his first company, Vanadium, in 2003. He ended up navigating the company through the 2008 financial crisis to a soft landing with Checkpoint in 2011, where he worked for a decade before launching Aux. In the episode, we discuss everything from his lessons from Vanadium to threat modeling the software supply chain and more. Nitsun, thanks for coming on the show. Hey, how are you doing? Awesome. Yeah, appreciate you, you taking the time here. So, starting back in 2003. You founded Vanadium, which was an EDR company. You led it for, I think it was about eight years until around 2011. Can you tell me a little bit more about that story? How did it come about and what led to you eventually moving on? Yeah, so uh, we started it, as you mentioned, in
1: 2003. um, And it was uh, a bit too early for that market specifically. We understood how important it is to understand what's going on on your endpoint and what are the exposures. But I think it was uh, also early for me in the career to actually understand how to do the go-to-market, what is important, how should I uh, address the uh, actual implementation at customer side and how to make it work. And uh, if you recall at the time 2008, 2009, 2010, uh, horrible years in terms of uh, fundraising and customers' new budget uh, to try and educate them at that point about new technologies and new risks. Um, it was really, really, really hard. And um, I think we took from it a lot of good lessons about diversifying the uh, inbound uh, lead sources and the target markets. And this is part of the inputs that uh, we're taking right now to Ox. But between vanadium and Ox, uh, also 10 years a Checkpoint where I learned this in a more um, methodological way of how do we actually approach the entire concept of understanding the customer journey uh, and how do you get them um,
0: satisfied with uh, your solution? A few things to, to pick apart a little bit further there. You mentioned how go-to-market was maybe one of the, the key challenges that, that you faced and specifically the kind of diversifying inbound leads you mentioned. And I think go-to-market is interesting in that you could build a company, kind of fail to find that product market fit and not necessarily have learned any tools that are going to make you more successful in the future in terms of kind of establishing that that go-to-market strategy. And so when you talk about diversifying inbound leads, obviously this is something that kind of any founder would like more of. I'm curious what maybe specific strategies or takeaways stuck out in terms of how you actually prioritized or were able to kind of recruit more of those inbound leads for Ox. Okay, um, so let's start by
1: defining how does product market fit look like? Because there's so many different definitions and probably all of them are true. Um, I'm using three KPIs to, to understand whether um, product market fit is in place or getting there. The three are, first of all, How are you growing year over year or quarter after quarter in terms of ARR? I'm talking about just new ARR, not about recurring in terms of renewals. So if you're able to generate more, that's a great start. The question is how fast? That's the first question. The second question is net dollar retention, which means you have an install base. Is it renewing? Is it expanding? And probably you want to see the KPI above 110%. So it means that the average customer increases the spend with you at least 10% a year. Some will churn, some will expand, but you need to increase your, in- your card install base. If you're not increasing the install base, it means that you were able to maximize everything from your current install base. There is no growth opportunity. It means your current is not in a product market fit, at least in my definition. The third parameter would be the efficiency. So it means if I'm looking on the KPIs from above, how much did I gain in terms of new AR in this quarter divided by the net loss of the company. So if you combine those two, what you get is I grew X amount of dollars, but I've lost Y amount. So it means that to acquire million dollar. I know right now what is the ratio of how much do I need to spend in terms of the company efficiency to get the new one. So let's say that I'm burning 10 million dollars to get to 1 million dollar of new sales. Obviously that's really a bad ratio. So throughout these stages of the company you want to get to the point that you're getting towards some kind of an efficiency model that you're able to grow and get more efficient as you uh, grow the company. If the trend is the other way around, meaning I used to spend a million to get a million, and now I need to spend two million uh, to get the same million as before, what it means is that I've lost the product market fit and I'm actually g- going in the wrong direction. So I need to go back to the basic. Uh, those are just KPIs that you can look from the outside and say, am I in the zone? Doing it has nothing to do with the KPIs, just it's the way to measure it versus the way to understand it. So going back to the original question about diversifying the uh, the lead sources. What happened to us in 2008 and 2009, we were going towards enterprises. Enterprises are known for a long sales cycle. And in a crisis, what happens is that you get to the point that sales cycle become even longer. So if you're planning some kind of a revenue stream, and you see that this is going to take longer, then you're in bad situation. But if at that point we would say, you know what, instead of going high towards the enterprises, we should go also to the mid-market and maybe tweak the offering a bit, then it wouldn't have been that bad in, in that sense. So we could have said, you know what, we understand enterprise market 2008, 2009, especially financial sector at that time maybe not smartest of idea, and we should have built more entry points to different markets so we'll be able to uh, change all the time.
0: But this is something that um, unfortunately we learned with experience. Yeah, and I like your, your breakdown in terms of product market fit and the, and the different KPIs you provided as well, right? Because the, the way you described it was, I think, in support of the idea of iteration and trying a lot of different strategies and then using your KPIs to measure each of those different strategies and, and their corresponding success and say, okay, when we took this strategy, we actually improved our efficiency or CAC. And when we took this one, we uh, it harmed our CAC. And so then of reverting based on whichever makes uh, the the kind of most incremental improvements and, and using that as kind of your north star. So I think that's an interesting way of, of framing it very simply uh, and in a straightforward manner. So. Tell me a little bit more about the kind of two thousand eight two thousand nine period. You had these challenges with vanadium, and ultimately decided to uh, move on to the next chapter. You went you went on to checkpoint. I mean, what was that process like for you? It had been, I think, about six years at that point, and then maybe another year and a half or so after the kind of two thousand nine crisis uh, before you before you moved on to checkpoint. What was the the decision process like? To move on to that next chapter especially after having worked on it for let's say six to eight years as opposed to just working on it for a year and moving on? Okay um, so in the beginning of uh,
1: 2000 uh, there were no monstrous seed rounds um, so you can get some money pre-seed a few hundreds of thousands of dollars to get started and you had to grow store, at least that's the path that uh, was in front of me. And as you go slower, it means that you need to be very calculated about every bet that you make. So you you can't just diversify because you want to diversify unless you've got a very, very good reason saying, yeah, I need to do that because it's critical, it reduces this risk. Um, And it's part of the learnings of um, how to think about it. So a very lean startup, um, getting to customers, getting them to be satisfied. But at that stage, remember that the internet advertisement towards B2B was not really that uh, high. The social network that were towards B2B also not that evolved. Um, So it was really a big challenge to understand how to go about it. I think that there are many things that I can say that we've learned from this experience, but today the world looks completely different. It's unrelated to what we had back then. Uh, But you get to the point that you get to a decision saying, do I raise money? Yes or no? And how easy it is to raise money. And remember that in those times, it was really, really hard to raise money uh, for everybody. Everybody was just looking at uh, two or three bad years in a row. Um, There weren't a lot of fundraising, especially in cyber at that time. Um, So at some point, after trying quite a lot, uh, we got to the decision saying, Okay, without a uh, major fund rise, um, we cannot continue to operate like this that we constantly need to bring in new investors, get a few more customers, and, and do and scrape your work for um, six years. That's really hard. Um, so I met um, Dorit, uh, who was my boss later on at Checkpoint. And she said, Look, you're at the end of the runway. Uh, why don't you and your guys join us? I'm sure that there are great things we can do together. Um, So I got all my guys to interview and do what's known today as a soft landing checkpoint. A lot of them stayed at checkpoint. I actually worked with uh, quite a lot of them afterwards, even though they went to different departments. Amazing experience. Uh, Really loved uh, being there uh, for almost 10 years. Uh, Amazing company, amazing people. Um, And I think that I've learned
0: quite a lot. and now hopefully I'm ready
1: for uh, round number
0: two. Huh. What an interesting strategy from Checkpoint in terms of kind of recruiting through the, the startup ecosystem and saying, hey, we're following the, the kind of financial state of your business and recognize that you guys are all very talented and know the space incredibly well. And here's just another option. It seems like a incredibly astute recruiting strategy. So that's, that's fascinating to hear. So you worked at Checkpoint for roughly a decade. What were you actually focusing on there? And more importantly, how did that specifically transition into the problem that you decided to set out and solve with Aux? Okay, so um, when I started at Checkpoint, I started doing uh, security for
1: cloud and through the cloud. Um, I've done this for four years, and uh, at some point I was asked to uh, manage the entire cybersecurity department of checkpoint. Actually, it was just formed at that point, uh, saying instead of different departments, we want to build one big cyber division uh, and have everything in a single place. Uh, so we built this um, strategy. Uh, we, we executed in it. The growth was amazing. Um, at a certain point, um, they've asked also for this to take in the sales side of the house of uh, the cybersecurity products. So also we were becoming um, a business unit from sales to product to uh, R&D to execute on that. And that created a very interesting streamline um, that we were able to control the entire flow from understanding where to focus, how do you find the customers, how do you engage with them, how do you satisfy them, and we created the culture around the streamlining of everything in organization, from where do you get the customer until how do you make sure this is a very happy customer. Um, I think it's, it's a model that you've seen in a lot of startups, but in a lot of bigger companies lose this, uh, as they go, um, and grow just because it's very hard to keep this mentality throughout the entire organization. And I think this is part of things that we are bringing. Also to OX. So everything is focused around customers. So everybody in the customer, in the company, sorry, knows exactly what's going on. And uh, every time that there is an issue or someone needs support, everybody is immediately over there to support. And I think that um, we're very, very proud in this achievement, building the culture of
0: this. And so as far as starting OX, where did that kind of specific problem set arise from? How did you? run into this supply chain piece and what made you decide, hey, this is something I want to build a company around? Um, So at some point um, in Checkpoint, they
1: asked me to also be responsible for um, parts of the AppSec of Checkpoint. And the guys always said, yeah, let's bring this tool. Let's try that tool. And I can't say that we got to the point that we understood how to do it in the optimal way. And I've tried to ask friends saying, how do you do it? What are the investment? What are the tools? What are?" And everybody had a different answer about what are they trying? Why are they trying it? Who are the per- people that are actually running this program for them? And I really struggled with it. Um, and the guys that, uh, that were actually doing it in my department also struggled with it. Uh, on the tools, on the budget, on influence, on whether we want to build Security Champions program or another program. So we we were doing this and replacing tools and testing a lot of things. And then we saw the SolarWinds uh, event. And uh, as we were dealing with that event, we figured out that everybody in the industry is kind of in the same way and are, are struggling with the same problems. And nothing was prepared to do that. And at that stage, we are trying to ask ourselves, okay, is there a map of the landscape saying, what are the threats that I should be worried about? If it happened once, it might be um, a blue moon in that sense, but it might also be something completely different. It might be something that we're going to see more. And as Chatpoint, checkpoint, we were one of the first responders to an attack called Noctetia, a few years backwards, that also had the same characteristics, but now it was something completely different. So we were saying, OK, that's that's fine. And we were doing the forensics and handling it. Um, fortunately for us, it, was, it wasn't it um, was anything severe or uh, even threatening as part of the organization they were to work with. But we've seen that many others were impacted by this in a very severe way. So we're starting to think, what can we do about it? What are the exposures that we, we might mitigate? And we waited three months, and there was another attack called Kotkov. I said, wow, this is really interesting because it's starting to happen faster and faster. And from that moment then on, every few weeks there is a new attack. So we got to the point saying, okay, every attack looks completely different, but we can't prepare for something if there is no map saying this is the, the landscape of all the threats, and this is what you should know. So at Checkpoint, we also were very attached to the MITRE framework that maps everything in the industry. And we are saying, if there was a map like MITRE, but for software supply chain, that would have been great because then we could have looked at everything say, oh, am I protected here? Is it prioritized? And there was some kind of framework that we can actually work with. Um, so with the help of about 20 different companies that contributed to this effort, we built the first map of all the software supply chain attacks out there, called Oscar, the Open Software Supply Chain Attack Reference. Um, it is in the site of uh, pbom.dev, pbom.dev, uh, as part of pipelinebuildofmaterials.dev, and you can search for this map and actually understand what are the exposures, what are the attacks that took place, how did the threat actors actually build them from the TTPs, the the techniques, tactics, and procedures. Uh, in order to build this. And this is where we started our journey uh, with saying, if we are able to draw a map and say, how are you protected, um, Mr. AppSec, versus this exposure map, and we can help you understand exactly how those exposures look like, how to prevent them from happening and how to mitigate them, then we might be able to rethink how software supply chain security needs to look like. So we raised funds from uh, Teammate, Evolution Equity, Microsoft, and IBM, uh, which are amazing backers for our uh, journey. Um, And now we're in a place that uh, we're constantly growing, and I think that uh, the message really resonates uh, with our customers. Uh, So growth is phenomenal so far. Um, the, The retention is great. And the efficiency, you know, when we talked about it, it needs to be better uh, as always but uh, it's a journey that we need to constantly improve it
0: so you mentioned this mapping framework of oscar and compared it to mitre and uh, mitre obviously probably best known for the attack framework and i'm trying to think through in the, the software supply chain space the kind of categories that you go ahead and select in terms of breaking down the different areas of vulnerability i mean obviously you have the source code you have the pipeline what are the other kind of key areas that you look at in terms of potential vulnerability and exploitation? Okay, so you're thinking about it in, in stages right now.
1: And those stages are the build stages or the SDLC, the software development lifecycle stages. So you code, then you build it, then you get to the point that you create the artifact, and then you run it in the cloud. But realistically speaking, threat actors don't think the same way. They're thinking about initial access. Where do I have the initial access to the organization? How can I do reconnaissance about the person, the access, the systems that you might have exposed? And let's take an event like um, wins, for example. So you start with reconnaissance, and then you do asset development, and then you look for your initial access, and then you look to the lateral movement. So even though the life cycle of an organization or the software is built from some stages, the threat actors think about it in a different set of skills, very much like the the kill frame by MITRE. So it's a different approach, looking instead of four major steps, they're thinking about it in 12 different steps because they need later on to do privilege escalation and to exfiltrate the data. It, It doesn't really matter where it is in the cycle. What matters is that you've got the ability to understand how to control it, how to manipulate things, where can I get the next credential to do the next hop? And we're trying to help organizations think about it the way attackers think, and not is I've got a code base, how do I protect the code base? Because let's say you've got code, but your git posture is not in place. It's very easy for me to come in and commit code without anybody reviewing it. And there are some different ways to bypass the system.
0: Yeah, no, I think that's a a great explanation. I think to your point, that's certainly a much more mature way of looking at it, at least from a conceptual standpoint. I think the challenge then is when you talk about tooling, tooling is more frequently, I guess you can correct me if I'm wrong, going to be linked to one of those specific components like the pipeline or the source code, as opposed to the, the kind of mapping structure that you just described, which uh, can be afforded the flexibility to think more along the lines of attackers. And Hey, maybe you make the argument that tooling shouldn't be designed that way. Obviously that has more complex pieces in terms of integrating with the the other tools that you're actually using within your SDLC, et cetera. So talk me through then the kind of capabilities from an OX standpoint and how you align those two different aspects in terms of the, the capability set of the tool in securing these different areas and then the Oscar framework and thinking about the more kind of conceptual buckets. Okay. So, we talked before about the coverage, that's
1: the Oscar framework. Now, let's say that you've got everything covered. So, you've got a bunch of tools running in your system, and each one of them is going to produce for you quite a lot of noise. Now, <clears throat> most of the tools in the industry, I probably say that they are commoditized at this point. You can find open sources that are doing roughly the same job right now. So it's, I don't think it's about the tool itself because they by themselves are context context-less. So they're thinking about this line of code. Do I have an exposure in this line of code? But this line of code might not be deployed to production. It might be not connected to the internet. It might be with a local exploitation, not a remote exploitation. It might be that there are, this is a test project and it's not connected to any demo or any databases. So you get to the point that you're saying, okay, without context, I'm going to be left with a lot of noise. So the question becomes, how can I now focus on where can I look on the kill chain and see if it's real and say, here's the place that I want to cut it over with minimal effort and say, this kill chain cannot happen anymore because I've fixed this problem that they know is mandatory in order to uh, propagate the attack. So what we're trying to do is say, look in the entire journey from code to cloud. So the entire journey, making sure that we know each piece of code, who developed it, how is it going to be built, where is it stored as an artifact, where is it running production, what API it exposes, and are those APIs uh, exposed to the internet. If we can answer those question, then we can do a triage for everything that goes into the system and say, can we focus just on the things that are important and are real, that we've got evidence to back them up. And this is how we remove 85 to 90% in extreme cases, even we've seen today a case of 97% of issues saying, not relevant to your organization, here are the evidence why it's not relevant, you can put them in the hygiene bucket versus security bucket. And this creates a lot of clarity to engineering teams when they need to figure out here's a list of 100 issues that you need to fix versus here's a list of five and here are the evidence why we think those are important. And it makes a huge difference for organization when they can actually say here are the things we can focus about and rest are not important at this
0: stage. Yeah, I think context is something that's very commonly uh, described today in terms of, oh, our tool gives you context and reduces your false positive rate or reduces the overall kind of burden on your developers or security team members, right? And so I'm I'm curious as you talk through this, what are the kind of key pieces of context that Aux has access to that an underlying tool like an SCA tool, for example, wouldn't. And just to give a specific example, I'm thinking about like the call graph analysis of uh, code libraries that might be used within uh, your source, right? So you're pulling in code from a third party, but if you're not actually calling any functions from it that are vulnerable, then you don't need to worry about that as a vulnerability because it's not actually exposing extra risk to your organization. You can pick that apart and, and have arguments with that piece as well. But how do you then think about, again, the, the kind of context across tools and, and the context that you're able to access specifically as OX. So, so the older generation of software composition
1: software uh, or companies <clears throat> used to think about uh, a domain, let's say software composition, I think it's a good example, so a lot of companies build themselves around saying. Can we get to the point that we understand the context of what library is calling what library? And it added a bit of context, but it was a context that didn't matter anything, because let's say that you have an exposure, which is three levels deep. So what are you going to do? You're going to fix the code of the open source of the open source that you're dependent on. No, you're not going to do that, right? You're going to upgrade the top one. So just saying, yeah, we know everything underneath, does it change the picture? Because you're still saying within the domain. But then you need to step outside of domain, saying, for example, is the vulnerable function within that open source even cold? So you need to zoom out and understand it. Is it even deployed to production? So you need to zoom out and understand it. So unless you're zooming out and saying, understand the context the broader context, outside of the the silo that the technology lies in, then yeah, it becomes meaningless very fast because you still reduce just 5% in an accurate way. The rest of ninety you're saying, I don't know if it's deployed to production, I don't know if it's exposed through an API, I don't know. So the guys need to do that, need to do it in a manual way. So they actually show us, here's our triage uh, manual and when something comes in, we do the triage and saying, here are sixteen steps. Do them yourself. So the, the amount of data that they can do and the reliance on manual operation becomes unbearable for most organization. So they kind of guess and say, we've got the capacity to do X changes. Let's do the critical ones, uh, but there are hundreds of them. So let's um, do the criticals over the coming year. What happens is they get another hundred in the first quarter. And they are saying, okay, we just need to do 200 right now. So by the end of first half of next year, we'll we'll be done with just the critical ones. Um, And I think that's a wrong approach. We should start with, do you have coverage? Because software composition is just one pillar of the problem. If you left your Jenkins exposed to the internet without two-factor authentication, then you know what? I'm not worried about the software composition. I'm really worried somebody's going to go into my Jenkins Open it up and do whatever they want. Or if my GitHub doesn't have security measures with it, I don't care about the software composition. Somebody can simply come in, install the, the back door, and that's it. I'm done. So there's so many different ways to uh, exploit software, software software composition. Sorry, the uh, software supply chain. That what we're saying is you need to prioritize it, looking on the entire map, not just on one side of. And one silo cannot see the entire context, that's the rule of the game. And this is exactly where we're focusing on making sure that we cover the entire journey from code to cloud in the lens of Oscar. And this is how we remove eighty five to ninety percent of the jump um,
0: out of the ghetto yeah, it's a it's a great explanation in terms of that um, kind of end to end journey and the the kind of specific value that that Ox provides looking at that more collectively. So I want to move us forward a little bit and kind of thinking about, I I was going to say the future, but I guess it's it's the present now as well, starting with the AI component, right? The specific example that I'm thinking of is the supply chain vulnerability we saw with OpenAI and how that impacted ChatGPT. There's a lot of companies that have spun up focused on AI security specifically, so model security, uh, there's model operations pieces of that as well, but we won't get into that component. I mean, when you think about the kind of AI security landscape that's arising while at the same time, the kind of most prominent vulnerability that's been publicized to date has been ultimately still software supply chain. What are some of the key differences that AI models might have to um might have to address, let's say, in terms of thinking about uh, software supply chain and and how do you, how does your team approach that differently, if at all? Okay, so securing AI models is really not my
1: expertise, so I can t- talk about it just briefly. <clears throat> I think that we understand that it's going to be a major revolution over the coming years, especially with the capabilities of gener- generative AI. Um, I think one of the things that, for example, we've done with generative AI is that you've got a lot of insights, but you need to adapt them per developer. So each developer needs a different set of, I would say, explanations to be satisfied saying, yeah, it's real, I should focus on that. Some need more data. Some need it in a visual way. Some need it um, in explanation or in a correlation to in general terms. So what we are doing with it, for example, is if we can take all the data that we have and just getting this to the place that we're saying, let's write it per developer and give that developer exactly what they need in order to get to the decision, and we can prime the prompt to just be do that based on previous data that we have for that user, then our probability of actually convincing the user to, or the developer, to close the security gap gets drastically higher. And this is what everybody in AppSec is trying to do. Now, as for the models themselves and the risks, there are numerous risks. I don't think that we've mapped all the risks uh, yet. I think that uh, right now, when we're looking on what are the potential risks, we've seen some of them. We've seen, I would say, probably a few tens of them. I think that over the coming year, we're going to be places we're going to learn way more Uh, and this is right now in in the steepest part of the learning curve Uh, as we're seeing every week there's a new kind of way to exploit um, the current guidelines and i think that the the market of the llms is going to change drastically i think that we've seen great enhancements in our ability to uh, address the market with models that are open source like llama and falcon and I think that it will create a place that you're saying, you know what, everybody has their ability to use LLM, uh, but I think it's just the beginning of the beginning of this industry. Uh, we're going to see LLMs with long-term memory uh, in the coming future. So all everything that you had in conversation will not be stored in one conversation. It will be lasting with you uh, for your lifetime. So it's going to learn everything that you've done and be better tuned for the person that is using it. Because I might use the, uh, the machine learning in one way and you're going to use it in a innocent way. And if my machine learning knows me better, then it's going to satisfy me better versus a generic one. And if I'll be able to poison in some way uh, somebody else's machine learning, then they might drive the wrong decisions at somebody else. And I think that there are great companies right now in security that are trying to address this problem, saying, "How can I make sure that my reliance is not compromised? That that the data set that I'm learning from is not compromised?" And I think this
0: is the—it's going to be super, super interesting. Yeah, that's that's surprising. That's not the answer that I expected to hear from you. Admittedly, I, I expected something more along the lines of, "Yep, AI security is important," but at the same time, it all comes back to software supply chain security underneath it and so this should be your number one priority Uh, but i appreciate the the perspective no no i
1: think it's a different domain Um, yes software yes machine learning is built on their own software supply chain but that's the same thing as a regular application Uh, i think that machine learning is going to bring with it different set of challenges i'm not sure if the challenges are going to be for the manufacturer of the um, machine learning algorithm or data, or is going to be per enterprise to defend themselves. I think that when cloud became, uh, I think, uh, a few good years back, uh, everybody said, yeah, we are trusting uh, whatever vendor that we used um, to secure us. And then you started to see the small letters appear saying, we are not accountable for your security. You need to secure yourself. We are not doing your security. Maybe machine learning will go through this route saying, we are not accountable for your security. And maybe it will be like smartphones where the manufacturers are accountable for the security and saying, yes, we are accountable that in our marketplace, there will be no such things. There are things like that, but they're handling it. You don't need to buy uh, an anti-bower like you do for uh, your PC, for example. It's built in, in the ecosystem that they've created. So we,
0: we just need to wait and see where it goes. Right. Okay, ceremonial last question for you here. Are you currently looking for investment or hiring?
1: We are always hiring. Um, so everybody that uh, is talented hopefully um, might want to to join our forces. Uh, and no, we, we're not uh, doing any fundraising. I think that we are very, very good in terms of uh, funds. We had uh, a very, very, uh, I would say good fortune with uh, getting to the right investors and being backed by the right people within those investors uh so no uh, we, we're good we're just focusing
0: on satisfying our customers and uh that's our entire solution. awesome yeah like you said at the beginning of the conversation right some lessons learned in terms of financing around different economic periods and i'm sure there was uh much more just kind of foresight and, and hesitancy to go into uh, the last kind of year or so of uncertainty uh with the uh, with less cash in the bank so <laughs> well, i would say well done uh, but awesome Nissan. really appreciate the time and uh, hearing your your different explanations and kind of thought process in terms of how you think conceptually about the broader supply chain space and also how aux fits into that and kind of solves this context gap that you described so thanks for your time thank you very much all right Thanks so much for listening to this episode. You can subscribe wherever you get your podcasts, and you can write to me at kyle at secureventures.io. I'm Kyle McNulty, and you've been listening to Secure Ventures.